Welcome to a healthy bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. Today on Healthy Bite, I am talking to author Judy Foreman. Judy has written several books, all published by Oxford University Press. Um, They are A Nation in Pain, which was published in 2014, The Global Pain Crisis, which was published in 2017, and Exercise is Medicine, which is the book we are talking about on today's podcast. And I will let Judy tell you a little bit more about herself. Well, my name is Judy Foreman. Um, I've been an exerciser my whole life. I was a cheerleader in high school and ever since sort of a runner for a while. And now I'm a, I'm a master swimmer. It's a big organization of people over 18. I'm considerably over 18, but I still compete in meets and I like to do this long distance thing. And I've done some open water swimming. I'm a grandmother. I have two grandsons, teenagers. Um, I'm married. I was a longtime reporter and columnist for the Boston Globe. And then I left to start writing books, and I've been doing that ever since. This is my third for Oxford University Press. In my spare time, um, I sing. I've been singing for many years in the Back Bay Corral. I travel and eat and go to book groups and have fun. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of fun (laughs) and and it sounds like most of your hobbies do not include sitting down. Uh, Well, tell you, writing books is more sitting than I planned on, but um, I've I've taken to heart one of the lessons that I learned, which is getting up every hour or so. In fact, I have a Fitbit, uh, now I have a smartwatch, but uh, sometimes they ding you and say, time to get up, take 250 steps. That's actually kind of helpful. And then you get a little, you know, a little applause from your Fitbit or from your phone. <laughs> well, not to get ahead of myself, but that was going to be one of my questions because I started, as I was reading your book, I hope you don't mind that I highlighted a lot of stuff in your book. Oh, that's great. A lot of stuff. It was timely for me because I love all things health, but the one thing that's health related that I'm not so good and diligent about is exercise. And I know you can eat all the healthy things, but if you don't exercise, you know, you're not really getting the full benefit of a healthy lifestyle. So I started assessing my life as I was reading your book. And I found that a lot of the things I do require sitting down my website is a thing that I do mostly sitting down. I do have a stand-up desk, but from reading your book, I'm not sure that that's necessarily all that beneficial. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah, and so I knit. So a lot of the things that I do require sitting, and then there was one section of your book where you tell the story, I think it was a swimmer, where she retired, and then she tried the arts and crafts for a week, and she's like, I feel like a 100-year-old woman. You can't spend all day sitting around knitting and doing crafts and expect to be, you know, feeling great. So I, I read that, and I highlighted it, and I'm like, okay, I got to ask Judy. Yes. What do we do if we love knitting? Boy, you're the first one to ask me that question. Um, don't you ever run out of yarn or have to go to the bathroom or <laughs> need a cup of coffee? Or <laughs> I mean, you can, you can either get a watch to tell you or set your, your phone or something to get up every hour. Just do 250 steps, dance around the house a little and, and try not to drop a stitch before you do that. <laughs> yeah, is that enough? So I do try to get up about every hour and I'll like maybe go do a little chore or I'll That's walk great. to the mailbox. Is that enough? 
No, but it's much better than sitting straight. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, one of the more depressing, my, the book is basically not depressing at all, except for the chapter called Sitting Kills, which it does. Um, and there, there is a study quoted in that chapter that um, if people like me who do exercise a lot, like about an hour a day, seven hours a week, um, if you sit seven hours, you're still not, you're still at greater risk of heart attacks and all the things that come from, from inflammation and sitting too much. So you have to not just do the big exercises, but move around in between. So even if, doable, though, right. So doable. what you're saying is even if you are an avid exerciser, but you spend seven or eight hours a day sitting straight, for example, at your job, yeah. then it's still not good enough. That's mm -hmm. right. It's a whole lot better than not doing that hour of exercise of by a mile, but it's still, you're still running the risk of too much sitting. Well, and I know um, you said that there is a chapter in the book that's a little, the only kind of depressing chapter and that's sitting, um, sitting kills. And we've been hearing this for years, sitting is the new smoking and everything. So why is it that sitting is so unhealthy? Yeah, that's a great question. And I spent a lot of time interviewing scientists about it and pondering it myself. First of all, we were evolutionarily programmed through our genes to run around. I mean, our ancestors did not, maybe they sat around the campfire and sang Kumbaya, but they, most of the time they were, they were not sitting around. They were busy uh, walking and hunting and everything. What, one of the big things that happens if you sit too much is you get fat. And as we all know, and visceral fat, the kind that's in your stomach um, and surrounding your organs, actually is a metabolically very active organ. It pumps out these chemicals called cytokines, which increase inflammation all over the body in a chronic low-level way. And that turns out to be really deadly. I mean, chronic inflammation underlies a lot of heart disease, diabetes, insulin insensitivity, atherosclerosis, neurodegenerative uh, dysfunction. I mean, it's really, it turns out to be a big culprit. And exercise offsets this beautifully. The other thing when you're sitting is you're, you're kind of losing muscle mass. And muscle mass, in addition to being good for moving us around and, you know, generally walking and everything, muscle actually absorbs a lot of blood sugar. It takes in blood sugar, blood sugar to make the muscles move. And that helps you keep your blood sugar under control, which of course helps you not get diabetes. So there's a lot of things that stem from sitting around too much, chiefly this chronic inflammation. So basically exercise is one of the ways you can prevent metabolic syndrome. Yes, yes. I mean, eating too much obviously is also bad, but exercise is huge. And, you know, one of the quotes from a scientist that has stuck with me the most, especially uh, for people with diabetes, is that if you have diabetes, doctors, some doctors consider this as if you've already had one heart attack. It's such a dangerous condition. And obviously exercise, some people need meds for diabetes, despite exercise, but exercise alone can do a lot. In fact, people consider exercise, the, the phrase is exercise is insulin and helps get the blood sugar out of your blood and into your muscles. That so makes a lot of sense. It, it okay. does, it really does make sense. And you know, all this evolved over evolution. You know, we have our ancestors genes and they weren't sitting around. We evolved, right. we evolved to move. It's sitting that's the anomaly.
Mm-hmm. And you talked a little bit about fat. So I'm going to jump ahead in my notes here and ask you to explain to us a little bit about brown fat oh, and okay. what type of exercise um, combats um, will increases our brown fat because brown fat, as I understand it, is the good kind of fat. That's right. And white fat is the bad kind of fat. Okay. I mean, everything in science is a little more complicated than just good and bad, but you've got mm-hmm. it exactly right. Um, basically, um, brown fat provides heat, so it ends up burning more calories. And exercise helps convert white fat to brown fat. And uh, there's a chemical that muscles put out. Muscles are also hormone factories like fat. And muscles put out a chemical called irisin, I-R-I-S-I-N, which is a really important um, chemical messenger, if you will. And that helps turn white fat to brown. So it's all a very delicate molecular system. And that's one of the important things that exercise does is help increase the browning of fat. That is very interesting and complicated. So exercise increases our muscle and it, it changes our white fat into brown fat. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And that's a good thing. And that's what we want. That is what we want. Okay. And And it's it's all molecular. It's all these chemical messengers. This, this particular, in this case, a messenger called irisin. Right. And speaking of messengers, can you tell us a little bit about how exercise affects our mitochondria? Ah, my favorite question, except for the question I hope you'll ask about the brain. But uh, for mitochondria... <laughs> you set me up. <laughs> I set you up. <laughs> Do-it-yourself interview. Um, I don't, most people probably remember from high school, or hopefully they do, but inside all of our cells, there's a little tiny organelle, they call it, like a mini organ called the mitochondria. Mitochondrion, the plural is mitochondria. And through a complex series of chemical actions, this this little organelle combines food and oxygen to make energy. And energy is actually not just a concept, it's um, a molecule called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And, you know, mitochondria are hugely important. And as we get older, they kind of poop out, they get fewer in number and less effective. And exercise, and this was first shown in animals, rats, and mice in cages, and now in people, exercise dramatically boosts the number of mitochondria. It mass produces mitochondria. And for people like you with a scientifically curious mind, um, there's actually another important chemical called PGC1-alpha. You don't have to remember this, but it's really an important chemical. And when you exercise, your body produces this chemical and it tells other parts of the body to make more mitochondria. So it's a direct connection between exercise and, and mitochondria. And when scientists in the lab inject lab animals with this PGC1-alpha chemical, um, they get more mitochondria and they become like marathon runners. So it's really an important chemical and your body makes it when you exercise. So that's, that's all the really uh, motivation we need for exercising because mitochondria can actually be created when we exercise. That's exactly right. They call it mitochondrial biogenesis. Okay, so let's move into talking a little bit about um, as we start to age, I'll be, I'm getting close to 50, and my mom, oh, thank you. Um, My mom has had some osteopenia. How does exercise benefit our bones? And Uh, what specific exercises are best for building stronger bones? 
Okay, that is a great chapter, um, or a great question, and I have a hopefully great chapter on that too. It used to be thought that exercise really could build bones and rebuild bones after you started to lose them with osteopenia or the worst thing, osteoporosis. That turned out to be a disappointing hypothesis. Um, it can, exercise can help preserve the bone you've got, but it doesn't really rebuild it. And even weight bearing, and, you know, whether you're lifting weights or running on a treadmill or whatever, doesn't seem to rebuild bones as much as we would like. But there's a big important but. Um, what exercise does is um, increase your muscle strength and depending on the exercise, increase your balance. And those two things help you not fall because it's not osteoporosis per se that's really bad, it's falling. So if your muscles are stronger and your balance is better, you're less likely to fall. So that's why exercise is important as opposed to directly making our bones, rebuilding lost bone. Oh, I see. Yeah, and, and that's kind of a twist on the story we've all been indoctrinated with. Um, yes, I've heard that forever. Yes, I know, I know. Uh, but the, the bottom line is still exercise is very good for bones, but just not exactly the way we thought. Right. And interestingly, um, biochemically, uh, bone tissue and muscles communicate a lot with each other chemically. There's a lot of what they call crosstalk. And in fact, if, if you break a bone, scientists have found out if they are um, in the lab, if they have a broken bone, um, they can put muscle tissue on top of it. And the signals, the chemical signals from the muscle tissue help the bone heal. So there's a lot of interaction between wow. muscle tissue and bone tissue. Wow. That is something I've never heard. Um, that's interesting. So they do this via, obviously, a surgery. No, this would be like in the lab they have shown. Oh, that. just in lab. Okay, yeah. okay. But it's not something that they do to help people repair bones. No, but exercise, you know, you don't want to jump around on a broken leg, obviously. Right, right. But getting your muscles strong and doing a PT and rehab after an injury, that's really important. Well, I think I'm trying to remember, I had read something in your, um, this isn't in my notes, so you'll have to help me if I'm losing, sure. if I'm going off track, but was there something in your book about um, the way that people rehabilitate now? Is there something new that they learned? Well, way back, that probably has more to do with hearts than bones. Okay. thinking of... Um, way back before your time, when President Eisenhower was president, he had a heart attack and they were advising, up, up, up until then they were advising a lot of bed rest. And right. them, they said, no, get up and walk around. And that was really revolutionary at the time. And now after people have heart attacks, they send them very quickly to cardiac rehab and make them exercise. Because it turns out that bed rest, this is one of my favorite studies bed rest right. bed rest study was in your book that's it's where i read really, it yeah, that's exactly right uh way back in 1966 a bunch of researchers in texas put five young men they were all 20 years old very healthy put them to bed for three weeks no bathroom breaks no getting up for anything just total bed rest this was actually a study to see what it would be like to be weightless in space so there was kind of a another justification for it and they tested all sorts of bodily functions including vo2 max you know how good your heart and lungs are at getting oxygen to your muscles 
And then they looked at them 30 years later and again 40 years later. And the effects of bed rest were equal to 30 years of aging. I mean, sitting around not only makes your muscles weak, but it really messes with your whole metabolism. It's a very serious, very serious problem. They call it rest is rust. I mean, obviously, you have to rest, but bed rest is really not a good thing. Yeah. It's kind of like watching TV all day. It's like too much sitting. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were saying that, no wonder they say sitting kills. I mean, yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, this may not be your favorite question about the brain, and I'll, I'm trying to think of what your favorite question might be, but le it does have to do with the brain. So let's talk a little bit about how exercise has an impact on our mental health. Okay. Specifically, depression, anxiety, and these types of um, things. Yes. Uh, uh, thank you for asking that question. Um, I actually have two chapters in the book on exercise and the brain. One is on exercise and cognition, which is like memory and other things. And we can go to that in a minute if you want. Um, but exercise and mood is, this was like, um, this chapter made me so happy um, just <laughs> writing it. Um, but when you exercise, and this has been shown in animals and people, um, your body pumps, your brain pumps out a chemical that they, the nickname for it is Miracle Grow. And the chemical name is BDNF, which stands for Brain Derived Neurotrophic Factor. It's kind of a mouthful, but what it basically is, is a chemical that's made in the brain and acts in the brain, specifically on the hippocampus, which is a memory center in the brain, and makes new nerve cells grow. So the hippocampus gets bigger. And what was really stunning for me was we knew, I already knew from previous research that BDNF, this miracle grow, helps improve memory. What I didn't know, which was fascinating to me, was that the same chemical, BDNF, has a huge effect on mood. And it's been thought for 30 years that depression is, um, and when it's really a biochemical depression, is a insufficiency of serotonin, you know, a neurotransmitter in the brain that we've all heard of. And Prozac helps raise the serotonin levels. But it turns out that serotonin works really closely with BDNF. And they kind of work as a team. And exercise, in part by working with serotonin, dramatically helps mood. The data on this are just, um, they're wonderful. Um, exercise is a very strong preventive to help you not get depressed. And in a number of studies, it's as good as uh, medication for treating depression. Um, obviously, if you're seriously depressed, you should see a psychiatrist or a regular doctor and consider medication, but consider exercise first. It can be really hard because if you're really, really depressed, the last thing you may feel like doing is going to the gym or going for a walk, but it's very effective. And the studies are unequivocal on this point. And I've been a medical writer for many years. And mo most of my life as a medical writer, the studies are on one side and the other side, and you keep having to say, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, with exercise and depression and exercise and cognition, everything lines up in a good direction. Um, exercise is extremely powerful, and it, it may be the best thing you can do for your mental health and your memory. Makes me want to go right out and exercise right now. <laughs> Uh, maybe that's why you're such a happy person. You, you, well, maybe. <laughs> because you love exercise. 
It, it could very well be. It could very well be. And I can speak as someone who has experienced um, depression. And, you know, I think some people tend to be more melancholic or, um, you know, tend to be more easily depressed than others. Even when you don't feel like it, if it's the only thing that you make yourself do, even if you can't make yourself take a shower, taking a walk is the best thing you can do for depression. You know, it's like that you can do yourself. I'm not discounting um, a time and a need and a place for medications, but I'm saying if there's one thing that you can get done in a day when you're depressed, taking a walk or any form of exercise, it's even better than showering. I'm telling you, it does a lot. Yeah, I know. I'm so glad you said that. That's really true. And, you know, I don't want to, depression is a complex and really important disease. A lot of Americans have it and it's not trivial at all. Um, it's a very serious disease. But in addition to all the good physiological effects, including in the brain, you kind of feel empowered if you've, if you've gone from, for a walk. Well, I've done this for myself. Yes. I'm taking care of myself. I did this good thing. And, you know, that's separate from all the other effects I was talking about, but it's kind of like a virtue thing. And it's really, that can help too. I do. And I think, you know, just being outdoors also contributes to, you know, your good feelings. But, um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, different types of exercise, but before I get to that, let me ask you to explain to us, because I feel like this goes a little bit along with the, um, depression and the other, um, subjects we've been talking about, but can you tell us a little bit about the correlation between exercise and the immune system inflammation in the body? Yes, um, that's another really important topic. Inflammation is, is one of the functions of the immune system. So if you cut your finger, pretty soon you'll notice that it's all red and swollen. Those are big signs of inflammation. And for a short term, for healing a wound or healing an infection, if you get a virus or a bacteria or something, inflammation is really an important part of the immune system. You need all those immune cells going to the site of injury. But inflammation is a really bad thing if it goes on for too long, if it becomes chronic. And it seems like what exercise does is shut off that inflammation response after it's done its good work before it becomes chronic. It's kind of a delicate balance. And it's interesting because some of the inflammatory cells from the immune system, um, like this one called IL-6, which stands for interleukin-6, um, that, that gets stimulated if you get a cold or if you exercise. But when you get a cold, that, that molecule hangs around for a long time and leads to chronic inflammation. That same molecule, when generated by exercise, hangs around a little bit, does its thing, and then goes away. So the, the, the immune cells that get generated by exercise actually have all good, no bad effects, whereas the ones generated by infection or injury, that can kind of lead to chronic inflammation. So the big thing exercise does is help control and reduce that chronic inflammation. Okay. And exercise can create inflammation, but inflammation is a good thing. In if it some, cuts off. Right. If it shuts off. So the type of inflammation we get from exercise is the type that knows when to shut off. Exactly. Okay. And you know, if you lift, if you lift weights, um, one of the things that happens with weightlifting is you, you tear a muscle, make tiny little tears in the muscle. And then the healing process of those little tears 
involves inflammation, but that's over in, I don't know, 24 hours, a short amount of time, and you end up with bigger, stronger muscles, and the, inf the inflammation shuts off. So it's a very interesting process, and of course, all of this came about through evolution. I mean, the body, you know, just came up with these things, which again, proves how important, it is, how essential exercise is to our species, essentially. Which is why um, bodybuilders and weightlifters take a day of rest after they don't work their legs out five days in a row. I, that's right. Yes, I'm definitely not a bodybuilder. But yeah, they know how to, they know how to do that balance, mm -hmm. which is really important. Okay. And as far as exercising, I did read a lot about running and runners in your book. Yes. Um, I loved the little inspirational stories you shared about people all of the different runners, the runner in Bo the Boston Marathon. Um, there was great. The 85 uh, year old woman. Yes. Yeah. I loved reading those real life stories about people. Um, but I have read conflicting information about running. So is running safe and is it how, what kind of impact does it have on our joints? And I've actually even read articles about it creating scar tissue on the heart. Can you tell us like how much running is safe? What, what's the, the balance on all this? So you, you asked about running and interestingly, running is the main thing that um, exercise physiologists have studied. So running is much better studied, running and walking are better studied than weightlifting and swimming and yoga and Tai Chi. There's much more data on running. And basically, um, let's leave the joint question for a separate question. Basically, you can exercise at 10 times the recommended 150 minutes a week um, at, with no harm. Obviously, if you have a heart condition or you have cancer or some other uh, serious disease, check with your doctor. But by and large, running and, and serious, serious intense exercise is good for you. There's practically no downside. I have data in my book um, for something like 60,000 person hours of running, there might be one sudden death. I mean, it's very, very rare. Um, in, in your question about marathon runners having scar tissue in the heart, uh, I'm not sure about the scar tissue. I know there have been studies saying that some of the chemicals, some of the same chemicals that are present in a heart attack are present after people run a marathon, but the damage seems to be very transient, very temporary, and doesn't really seem to interfere with heart function. So basically, you know, if you have a heart condition, don't take my word for it, go to your doctor. Right. But many, many, many cardiologists think that uh, fitness and exercise should be the, what they call the fifth vital sign, that doctors should not just take your blood pressure and your temperature and and all and your pulse, but but check your fitness because it's so important for cardiac health. In terms yeah. of joints, I don't run as much as I used to because of knees. I've switched a lot to swimming, although the treadmill doesn't seem to bother me and the elliptical doesn't seem to bother me. You do have to take your joints seriously and a lot of people's knees do kind of poop out with time. The, the evidence is mixed. I mean, overall exercise is a positive, but if you have really bad, Need, I mean, you're not going to want to run um, if, it, if it causes a lot of pain. I mean, pain is a signal to the body that, that something is not right. So the basic advice is, you know, move whatever body parts don't hurt. 
but keep moving something. I mean, if you have bad knees, there's a machine in the gym you could sort of crank like a, they call it a, a sitting bike or something or an arm bike. Um, there's usually some limbs that still still can be moved. And so do whatever you can that, that doesn't hurt. And there's usually a lot of things you can figure out. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to agree with what you were saying there. Obviously, we're going to give a disclaimer. You know, if you're going to go out and start some big exercise program, what kind of uh, tests should people go ask their doctor for before they start some kind of exercise program? Well, there are, I mean, the, the gold standard test is to put somebody, is a stress test on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. And they wire you up with electrodes and see how long you can go on the treadmill. Um, and it depends a lot on your age and obviously your fitness level. And if you can go for, I mean, I forget what it is at, at my age, but like six minutes and, you know, but some people can't do that at all. Some people really start showing signs of distress at one or two minutes. Um, so that's the ideal test. But doctors can do kind of informal tests, like ask you to jog up and down their their corridor or something, um, you know, do a walking test, see how long it takes you to walk a quarter of a mile or a hundred yards. I mean, they're sort of less accurate, but still somewhat helpful tests that doctors can and should do. Yeah. And I think in the back of your book, you have some links to some yeah. um, kind of online questionnaire test type things that you can do to see um, you know, kind of what your fitness level is based on your answers. That's right. That's right. Okay. So and for say, have to say are, are really distressed when they find out um, my brother who actually died of a heart problem. I mean, he had diabetes and was overweight and had a lot of medical problems and they put him on a stress test and he could barely last a minute or two. I mean, these tests are actually quite accurate mm -hmm. at predicting, but they're expensive. So most doctors aren't going to do it as a matter of course. Right. And you know, the doctors will ask people, how much do you exercise? And basically everybody lies. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, you can't really take the patient's self-report as oh, goodness. Not yeah. me. Yeah. My poor doctor hears all of the the ugly truth. Because <laughs> I'm like, what's the good of telling them a lie? They're not going to be able to help me if I'm not telling them the truth. So well, that's, that's a good point. That's yeah, good I confess. But the thing is, I think though, sometimes, and this is totally off track, but sometimes I think my, my doctors don't always, and my dentist as well, doesn't always believe me when I say I don't eat sugar. And they're like, you don't put sugar in your coffee. You don't drink soda. And I'm like, no, I don't. And I don't drink fruit juice either. And they're like, I think so many people have conditioned them by lying about what they do that they don't actually believe me when I tell them. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyways, um, let's talk about someone who's, you know, my age between 40 and 50, and they do absolutely no exercise right now. Um, they're listening to this podcast and they just want to go out and start exercising. What's the safest way for people to start? What's, what can they do? Just go start walking well, if, if they're healthy, if they, if they're wondering, they can check with their doctor. Right. Um, but you know, for people who don't have any big concerns about health, start walking. I mean, mm -hmm. it's kind of a no brainer and you know, you don't even have to go outside. If you're watching TV, get up and walk around while you're watching TV. Um, try to add, I mean, I, I hate to advertise products, but these, um, Fitbits and smartwatches and things, they can be very gratifying. I mean, if you get 5,000 steps a day, okay, that's not, that's not great, but it's not terrible. And then you might try to get 6,000 the next day. It's a very 
positive feedback loop. And just uh, on that point, um, people, the, the Fitbit people and other manufacturers kind of say you're supposed to get 10,000 steps a day. It turns out you don't. Um, 7,500 is probably enough. And the 10,000 figure came from Japanese researchers who were looking for the character that uh, looked like walking and it was the same as 10,000. So that's a bit of an arbitrary thing, although it's a great goal, but you don't have to, you don't have to run a marathon. You don't have to get 10,000 steps. You can get 7,000 or 5,000. Anything is better than nothing. Agreed. More is better, but anything is better than nothing. And I always like it when people say, you know, what kind of exercise is the best? Well, the kind that you'll stick to, (laughs) obviously. Absolutely true. And one of the most prominent exercise physiologists in the country is a guy uh, named Steve Blair. And, you know, I asked him that question. He said exactly what you said. The best exercise is the one you will do. And the Mm -hmm. one you enjoy, because if you enjoy it, at least somewhat, you'll do it. Mm -hmm. For me, that's dancing. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah, put on some music dance. and dance around your living room. Yeah, or with your partner. I mean, or with your partner, or yeah. by yourself, or whatever. Uh huh. Yeah, um, I love dancing. Um, so I know I didn't think of your most favorite question. So you have to ask yourself the most favorite question about the brain, because now I'm curious and I need to know. Well, I sort of answered it with this this BDNF chemical, this miracle grow for the brain. It's so powerful. And um, researchers have actually injected BDNF into animals and their, their hippocampus grows. It might seem funny to think of a depressed <laughs> rat, but there are, tests to, there are tests to tell when a rat is depressed. It, like it gives up going around a maze. It mm-hmm. acts like learned helplessness. And you know, this BDNF molecule gets rid of that. I mean, this is generated by the brain. It's like nature's or evolutionary biology system for um, for making the brain stronger via exercise. There's one other thing I, I would like to say about the brain, mm-hmm. and that is we've often talked about the runner's high, and people have thought that it's endorphins, um, and everybody knows about endorphins, that triggers the runner's high. It turns out it's not really endorphins. It's another chemical made in the body called endocannabinoids. It's our own self-made version of marijuana. God wanted us to take marijuana. Um, and it's sort of, that's, that's where the runner's high really seems to come from, is this increase in endocannabinoids. And it's fascinating because that, that makes exercise its own self-rewarding system. You know, if you feel good when you do it, you'll want to do it again. Yes. And that is so fascinating. I, um, a while back when I wrote an article about CBD, I actually studied the endocannabinoid system, which is called something else. I can't remember um, what the actual system. Yes. Um, And the whole subject, I think, is very fascinating that we have the system inside of our body that produces us. Yeah, it's very interesting. I wanted to ask you one more question. There was a quote in your book that I really liked. Um, I think it was in the chapter about anti-aging. And you wrote, think of it this way exercise is a drug. It is a medicine. In fact, it's the best medicine going. It's also free. In other words, the only time it makes sense to take a pill is if you're too sick, injured, or disabled to move. 
So are researchers and scientists working on pills for people like, I know you mentioned Christopher Reeves, um, for people uh, like with chronic disabilities? I don't think I did mention Christopher Reeves. Oh, you didn't? But it, Maybe he, I clicked he, on something and read something about that. Yes, yes. I have a whole chapter on what they call exercise mimetics, which means mimics, drugs that mimic the effect of exercise, and also anti-aging pills. It was very interesting, and I'm not endorsing these or recommending these. Right. The thing about exercise is, hopefully people have gotten this impression, it acts all over the body, many different organ systems, many different molecules, many different chemicals that talk one organ to another. If you take a pill, that's likely to hit only one of those functions. So, you know, exercise hits them all. Pills were really sort of tightly aimed at one thing or another. Mm -hmm. But there is, there, some of them are really wacky, but some of the things on the market now or being uh, researched now actually do have a serious scientific rationale. So we don't want to throw the, the, the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, there are a number of scientists who think that instead of combating the diseases of aging one by one, we should think of aging as a big category with all these other things in it and find drugs um, that combat the very basic underlying processes of aging. And in the book, you might remember, I have a part where I talk about the nine molecular hallmarks of aging. And some of these drugs are aimed at combating the, the decay of those processes. Um, so it's not like you can throw out the idea of drugs, but basically they would be, as you said, for people like Christopher Reeves, who can't move, who are totally disabled or paralyzed, these drugs would be a way of keeping some of their body functions more closer to normal than they would be otherwise. But again, I'm not endorsing these. And some of these drugs, you know, bodybuilders in particular like to go after some of these things. And a lot of these drugs are banned huh. by the by WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. So, okay. you know, careful. Right, right. Very so obviously, yes. And I... I only mentioned it because I thought it was so interesting that for people like Christopher Reeves, who were so athletic um, before yeah. his accident, it's such a tragedy, but that's something that could make that kind of person a healthier person if yeah. these scientists and researchers are able to come up with something like this. But yes, I agree. It has to be used for in must like absolute need um, scenarios, not people who just want to use these drugs for their own personal or, gain or, or right. to use them instead of exercising I instead mean, of exercise people, right that people will say oh i don't need to exercise i'll just pop a pill and right that, right nobody's really recommending that yeah no of course not but i do have a group um for people who have chronic illness and um i know a lot of people who actually can't i'm thinking of one a person in particular who can't walk and i was just thinking about that as such a, a fascinating and amazing thing that you know science can help people you know like this through medication when it's necessary so you know and that's probably how i came on the subject of christopher reeves because i had never heard of this kind of pill before until i read about it in your book yeah. and i probably read a couple of other google scholar um you know papers about it and that's maybe where i got his name from but anyways i found that interesting and i appreciated that you brought that to my attention in your book i loved your book and i highlighted so much of it um but i wanted to ask you too um what so what is the bottom line on exercise what's the most important thing that people need to know do it <laughs> 
I knew it. I knew it was going to be short and sweet. <laughs> Can I just mention something about the, sure. gender, the person you know who, who can't walk? Um, I don't know. Can the person still use their arms? She does. Yes. She's in a lot of pain. Um, she actually does a lot of woodworking and she tries to, but something she can't do. Um, she had a, a bike, a motorcycle accident and, um, she had lost the use of her legs. Yeah. By the way, I, I have my previous book, which people can look up on my website. It's all about chronic pain. It's mm -hmm. called a nation in pain. Mm -hmm. But what I was going to say is there's a woman on my swim team who can hardly use her legs and she swims mostly with her arms and she's very strong and she enters the same meets as the rest of us. She does the Paralympics, but she also does regular events, the regular wow. meets. So, you know, you use what you still can move. Basically. Yes. And she does that and everybody is very supportive and in awe of her. So that is so inspiring. I mean, I yeah. guess there's a reason why they have those um, chairs there to lower people down into the water. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. And water aerobics can be great, by the way. Um, people wear sort of a belt around their waist mm. and, and mm. you can get a good, a good workout. You can get your heart going, your heart rate going pretty well doing water aerobics. I'm and going to pass this great. along to her. Especially, you know, your previous question about running and joints, mm -hmm. you can do a lot, you can get a lot of cardio benefits from doing water aerobics. Mm -hmm. without yeah. joints. Yes. I, I guess I uh, ask, I've always wanted to be a runner, but ever since I was in my early twenties, I think it actually started because of some hormone. Maybe I have no proof of this because it happened around the time um, one of my children was born. I started getting that crinkly crunchy sound in my knees when I go up and down the stairs and the sound just makes me cringe alone thinking what's going on inside my knee that makes it like this and it's something that's kind of come and gone all my life but I've always been kind of fearful of running because of that crunchy kneecap sound whenever I walk up and down the stairs I know young people who even have that so maybe it's not that big of a deal I don't know well, it's interesting you mentioned that around the time your, one of your children was born because when, when a woman is pregnant, there's a lot of estrogen in her system and that loosens your joints. So a lot of women, if they, if they go skiing or play basketball or something that kind of can twist your joints right after childbirth, um, they can really injure those joints. Oh, I know. From, I know for a fact, um, after my son was born, I had my rib dislocated because, you know, your joints are still loose Yeah. Uh -huh, from the hormones. But yeah. yeah, so it is, it's important to be very careful, but I do think that swimming is something that I've always kind of enjoyed. And I feel like it is a little bit easier on my knee joints than, than running. I want to be a runner. It looks like such fun and I, I hear people talk about it, but I just not sure it's for me. Yeah, I feel the same way, yeah. but, but swimming isn't so bad. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Judy. Where can people find you if they want to read more or find your books? They can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, and on my website, which is judyforeman.com, which spelling is J-U-D-Y-F-O-R-E-M-A-N.com. Awesome. And I will leave a link to that in the show notes. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.